Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. It's the usual suspect, Saqib and Anand, but we have a special guest joining us today. And to many fans like myself, Nick Lester is the voice of tennis. I've been listening to him on the Tennis Channel and many other feeds for quite some time. Thanks, Nick, for taking time out of your busy schedule joining us. Pleasure, guys. Absolute pleasure. So, just uh, for the introduction, you know, uh, fill us in. I know you are heading to Monte Carlo. And you were in Miami a couple of weeks ago, probably did some Davis Cup and even doing some tennis commentary, uh, maybe even today. Just uh, yeah, give us yeah. a... So, so basically, um, I do the vast majority of the Masters 1000s for the World Feed, as you know. And then around that, I tend to do some of the 250s. They're largely commentated on from London. Davis Cup is... Uh, can vary. The last few years has been on site. Obviously, last week I was in London doing Serbia, Spain, and yeah, I've just come back from a month in America. It was the first time I'd done a, both events back to back. I've done both before, but never back to back. And then I go to Monte Carlo tomorrow morning. So obviously, that's a not the the, uh, the time zone change isn't quite so harsh for for, for the European tournaments. But uh, I love this is a great time of year for me. I, I love Monte Carlo. It's always Probably, to be honest, my favourite event of the year. Certainly very close. Uh, there's a couple of events that run it close, but I think it's probably my favourite event of the year. Um, and, yeah, just just been sort of the last couple of days busy sort of preparing for, for that trip and, and getting ready for, for what should be a good tournament, I hope. That sounds that sounds pretty crazy. Um, so, and I'm sure it's a lot of fun. What what is uh, what do you do to prepare uh, for a tournament? Uh, yeah, a couple of days. It's, it's interesting you say that because last night I spent a couple of hours just uh, just making some sort of brief notes. Obviously, we're very fortunate that I get to see the players week in week out, pretty much. So, you know, in terms of their sort of records, uh, current records, that's not too much in the way of research for me. But it's more to be honest. I think now, certainly these days, it's more uh, event-specific research that I tend to do. So I, I go back, uh, everyone knows Rafa's won, obviously, nine Monte Carlos, but perhaps people don't necessarily know Stan's record there or you know whoever it may be. So certainly last night, I spent a couple of hours breaking down each player's record in specifically in Monte Carlo and also looking um, at, at sort of ahead a little bit. So looking at, at how players did throughout the clay court season last year, you know, specifically Rome, Madrid, Monte Carlo, that hat-trick of events, obviously being three Masters 1000s. I'm, I'm looking at what points players have got to defend, how they did last year. Is there any correlation with kind of playing one week? If they played well one week, is there another? So, yeah, lot, lots of, you know, clearly for us, uh, the rankings are, are fairly important. When we're commentating, we're always kind of often talking about the rankings, where players are sitting, uh, how that could affect a win here or there, how that could affect their ranking. Players may not think about that quite so much, but we certainly do. So you know, there's a, there's a lot of that that goes on, a lot of kind of looking at the live rankings and, and how things stand. Um, but but you know, purely on, from a research point of view, um, I'm in a fortunate position that because I'm seeing them every week, I tend to know what they're doing and, and what they've been. But as I say, it's more it's more getting I think an overview of the specific time of year, how they've played at that time of year before. Um, uh, and, and kind of looking at backing up their results, perhaps from previous years. Uh, we ask this to everyone, uh, whoever has been a guest here. Uh, myself and Anand, we call ourselves the Boris Becker generation. Uh, while growing up in India, mm. we fell in the, uh, love with the game and Becker won in 85 and then the Steffi Graf era started. Mm. Uh, what's your connection? How did it start with you as far as tennis goes? Well, my first kind of not inspiration, but my first guy that I used to love to watch was Mats Villander. He was, um, I'm, I was born in 1977. So when I was, I kind of grew up 
I started playing tennis pretty early. I kind of played tennis sort of seven, eight, nine, short tennis back in the UK. And I remember being taken to Wimbledon by my parents and, and I followed Max Willander very closely. Um, and then obviously as I got a little bit older, he kind of started to, to he retired. So there were other players that I, I certainly took to. Was always a, Personally, I was always a big fan um, of the guys that played well on clay for whatever reason. I mean, I, I don't know why that was. I just always enjoyed their graft, I guess. I guess enjoyed their discipline that, that was required to, to play on clay and the physicality of it that certainly, you know, you had to... You had to work hard in order to keep that going. So uh, I think, I think probably someone like a Carlos Moya was again following on from Villana, someone I followed very closely. I'm not sure I call him a, a hero, but certainly someone that I I um, had. A, I felt like I had an affinity with in terms of just enjoyed watching him play and and the way he went about his business. And I liked, you know, I liked Juan Carlos Ferrero a lot as well. That the Spanish generation were were certainly as competitors. I think some of the best, and and also came across as being some of the modest as well. So so I enjoyed watching those guys play. And um, I know you had a tennis career as well. How was that segue into broadcasting? Was that planned or that's something that's accidental? No, that's that's a very long story, really, because, um, you know, I had a very, I'll be the first to say I had a very minor tennis career. You know, I wasn't a particularly great player. I, got, I had a few ATP points. Um, I worked pretty hard, but... You know, a few years ago, when I look back on it now, I certainly would have done a lot of things very differently. But, you know, you can't turn back the clock. And when I stopped playing professionally, I played professionally for a couple of years. When I stopped playing probably in 1999, 2000, I uh, gained my coaching qualifications. So I gained all my coaching badges. Um, and then I did a little bit of coaching, but I wasn't really enjoying it particularly. I, I kind of didn't, didn't love coaching. So I actually, um, there was a very small radio station very near where I lived and I, I got in touch with them and um, made some contacts there and they had a sports show on a Saturday that I ended up working on just as part time, just it was just once a week and I really enjoyed kind of learning the, the broadcasting route. I did a fair bit of football, uh, did a fair bit of rugby, different sports and, and it was really just kind of me getting comfortable behind a microphone. Um, and then I got a, my first tennis break came at Radio Wimbledon, which is probably about 2003, 2002. I did a week, a week's work for Radio Wimbledon and things, you know, very slowly but surely started to snowball from there. It was a, it's been a very long process. It's taken many years, but, uh, I've certainly done a, a number of different, different, um, in different aspects of broadcasting, which is, which has definitely helped me along the way. So over the years, I mean, so you mentioned uh, Mats Willander got you really interested in the sport. But as a as a professional commentator, do you do you have any role models, any people you looked up to? You know, we, we kind of get asked that all the time. Um, and I'll be absolutely honest with you. My answer to that is no, really, because I'm such a fan of I'm such a big fan of the sport um, that I, I just, you know, so many of the guys clearly, you know, we all see how for the most part, how much hard work goes into being an elite tennis player, how tough it is. You know, I've seen the, the futures level, the challenger level, and, and we all know how difficult it is to break through those levels. So I think the respect that we all have for the guys that are playing on the tour is, is so high that I, I don't really think, you know, I certainly couldn't hand on heart say I have a, I have a preferred player. You know, clearly there are, clearly there are players that um, generate more interest uh, and and whip up the crowd in in a way that makes our job that much easier. You know, thinking of, of Federer, of course, who wherever you go in the world, doesn't matter where you are, Shanghai, 
Cincinnati. It doesn't matter. It's an incredible atmosphere when he comes onto court. So, you know, I think when you, it makes it that much easier to engage as a commentator when you have those guys playing, clearly. But in saying that, I'm equally fascinated by some of the guys like Lorenzi, Paolo Lorenzi, and, and those sorts of players, and Stefan Robert, who are all done well in their kind of mid-30s, all having taken a very long road to, to, mm. to, to the professional game and, and, and having, you know, getting these opportunities to play their first Masters 1000s at the age of 34, 35 is, to me, equally impressive. So I don't think I have a favourite or a particular, you know, um, and lean towards anyone. I think everyone has got their own story and I think that's what makes tennis so fascinating. That's what makes sport so fascinating, not just tennis. How about in the booth? I'm sure you've shared the booth with the likes of Johnny Mack and Boris Becker, and then you probably, well, you're growing up, have listened to the likes of John Barrett. So any inspirations in the booth, uh, how people go about their business? Because your style is pretty unique itself. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Again, honestly, I'm not really sure that I ever copied anybody. I mean, I kind of learned this this on the job. I I learned it. um, No one taught me anything. You know, I was never taught how to do this job. Clearly, I watched a lot of tennis as a a youngster and, and probably without knowing took a fair bit in, in terms of people's styles and, and whatnot. But I don't think really there's ever uh, someone that I modeled myself on in particular. I, I very much go by the philosophy that we are certainly as commentators, not the show. It's, it's very much about the players. And my job as a commentator is to try and bring something else that the viewer can't see, which is, which is critical. And also to, to not spoil it for the viewers. I think there are a lot of commentators and broadcasters out there um, who do frustrate an audience by perhaps just talking too much. It's it's not, you know, I've always gone by the philosophy a little bit of less is more when it comes to tennis broadcasting. I think that's what generally the audience wants. They want quality, not necessarily quantity. And I do think some people struggle with that because they're so desperate to say something it's almost like they're really trying to justify their job and you know if you guys have listened to us over the years you'll know that we often go we can go Mm -hmm. two three four points without saying something if if nothing needs to be said or or whatever it may be we'll we'll let it breathe and i think that I, i i generally sense that the viewer appreciates that i don't think the viewer um again took from feedback that we certainly have and and trying to understand what the audience want they don't always want people talking all the time. They want they want uh, added value brought by a commentator, but they don't want intrusion, if you like, from from a broadcaster. And that's what we try to bring. I think you know certainly myself and and Robbie Koenig, who obviously I work alongside a fair bit. Um, we try to we try to add something to the pictures. Someone once said to me, a very um, famous broadcaster once said to me, your your job as a television commentator is to tell the viewer what the pictures don't. And I always try and try and go by that philosophy as much as I can. No, that's that's very interesting because uh, you know, we growing up in the eighties, that's that's kind of the the tennis we were exposed to and the commentary we were exposed to is um, you know, very pointed and uh, remarks that added value uh, to what we were seeing. Sure. Um, but but I wanted to ask: is it is it a cultural thing? I mean, uh, is it the if I can use the term Americanization of? Uh, of commentary uh, that, that you see a lot more chattiness. Yeah, I, I think it probably is. I think it probably is. Um, even in the UK now, I think there's a lot of broadcasters who probably fall into the trap a little bit of, of, of just doing a little bit too much. Um, but again, it's only, it's only my personal opinion. Um, I just think, 
you know, there is, you know, obviously I spend a lot of time in the States, so I, I do listen to a lot of American broadcasters as well on, on ESPN and, and various different networks. And, and I, I really enjoy listening to those guys because obviously the knowledge is there. Um, but again, we just come at it from a slightly different angle, I think. And I always, you know, again, less lessons that I've learned. Um, what I try to do is, as a broadcaster, is I, I try to build the coverage. I, you know, if there's a if there's a big point or, or you know, it's a big kind of thirty or four or final setup, I want to add words that add words that add to the drama because the drama is already there. But my job, I think, is to accentuate that to an extent. So. You know, they're all lessons that I try and use and, and just try and try and bring to a broadcast that hopefully adds value to, to what people can enjoy at home. How, how, do you, how do you adapt, Nick, when you're with, uh, with say, an American broadcaster who's, mm. who's chatty? Um, so, I mean, so you probably don't want to speak as much, but then you find your partners probably, uh, you know, taking over the conversation. And yeah. do you, at that point, just take the step back? Or uh, how does that work? How do you adapt? That's difficult. That's definitely difficult. Um, that's probably one of the biggest challenges, I would say, actually, from, from my job, um, because there are certainly a few out there who do like to, to talk a lot. Um, I probably, if I'm working with someone like that, just tend to let it let them go and, and not necessarily come in um, off their back. It really depends who I'm working with, but I, but I think, um, you know, again, from, from the American's point of view, uh, to be honest, I don't work with that many Americans, probably only off the top of my head, only three or four over the years, maybe maybe a touch more. But um, yeah, I think I think also there is a little bit of meeting in the middle sometimes because they know my style. They often kind of rein it in a little bit. So I think there's that little bit of meeting in the middle. But, you know, certainly, you you know, like it's like a, it's like a doubles partnership, isn't it? Working in a commentary box, you know, you, you have to you have to gel with the person you're working with and, and you have to get on. Okay, so I want to go back to uh, the few questions ago when you mentioned how you got started with a small radio station. Uh, going back again, living in India, we used to listen to cricket commentary on radio in school. Mm. And my dad, who had a radio job, always said radio commentary is far more difficult than TV because not only are you telling the audience what's happening, you're creating a visual. Yeah. Uh, what do you associate with the radio challenge compared to working on a TV booth? It is day and night, utterly day and night, completely different skill, completely different skill. Um, very, very challenging working on the radio. It's how I started. So I, I came at it from, from that perspective. Uh, very demanding, very draining. Commentary on the radio is very draining. I, I was fine. I don't do that much radio anymore. But what I do find is when I do do a day of radio, I'm exhausted at the end of the day because it's just so different to, to TV. Um, I love radio, though. I, I love the challenge of, of broadcasting on the radio. It's um, very much descriptive. It's obviously... Think always in the back of your mind. You're trying to imagine someone driving in the car or sitting at home with nothing uh, but a but a triumph for them. Trying to use their imagination, so you're trying to uh, build their imagination, implant into their imagination as, as to what's happened. Um, but I love radio. I absolutely, I I really do. I, I don't do as much of it these days. Um, I, I generally work at Wimbledon doing the the radio service there, which is great fun. Um, but it's a completely different skill because, as I say. For me, television is um, a more challenging skill in terms of understanding the sport because you have to be able to add something perhaps from a technical or a tactical point of view because it's, the viewer's already seen it. So there has to be something that you can add to that particular point. Whereas on the radio, obviously, you come at it from the perspective of um, very much being more descriptive. So you're having to constantly describe um, the action uh, non-stop back and forward and then ultimately 
and something sometimes radio broadcasters tend to do, you have to make sure you tell the broadcast the viewer who won or listener who won the point. Because very often on radio, you could say it's a great forehand down the line, but you haven't told the listener who won the point. So they always must they always must tell the, the listener who actually won the point at the end. That's critical. So totally different skills. Um, yeah. But very, very uh, radio, very challenging from a, I think from a mental point of view. TV very challenging, I think, from a skill point of view and understanding of tennis. So, um, Nick, there's a lot of uh, former players in the booth now. Uh, John McEnroe and Darren Cahill, and we also see Andy Roddick sometimes. Mm. Um, so, if you look at the tour today, do you see any potential uh, uh, colleagues coming up? I mean, of all the players right now and uh, on the tour, do you see anyone coming up? and potentially joining the booth? I, I haven't heard a whole lot of Leighton Hewitt, but I hear Leighton Hewitt was very good in Australia a couple of years ago. I, I heard he got very good reviews. I didn't. I heard a little bit of Andy Roddick here at Wimbledon a couple of years ago. I think you need to have people, um, ex-players, who, one, are willing to tell it how it is, and also, two, I think are willing to share their stories and share their experiences because that is what ex-players as, as commentators, I think don't often understand that, that what the job requirement. You know, it's it's almost like they're put into a commentary booth, but there's very there's a very little instruction as to what is required of them. And I think perhaps Roddick was someone who just got it straight away. He just knew what was required. But a lot of players are quite afraid. I, I found to to actually open up and be critical of of ex players and obviously people they know and friends but also to actually understand what the job is about, certainly for television, because a lot of ex-players initially when they retire, they, they, they fall into the category of what I just said earlier on, of just basically telling you what you've already seen. Well, you know, as ex-players, their job is they've been there and done it. They've been on the court. They've played these guys. So when I work with a lot of ex-players, I always try and kind of make sure that I can get out of them as much as possible of their experiences and what it felt like and who they were playing and what the spin was like on the ball when they played Rafa or, or whatever it may have been, because I think that is taking, taking the coverage to another level. That's for me is bringing value to, to, to the listener that, uh, you know, that, that perhaps wouldn't otherwise necessarily be there. A lot of broadcasters, a lot of players I find come into the commentary box and they, they don't add anything. And I think that's such a shame because, they clearly have a lot to add, but they just perhaps don't quite know or, or haven't been told how to share it. Okay, so one more question I had in mind, which uh, I forgot almost, but it came back, is uh, what's the mindset when you're prepping, say, you're doing a Federer Djokovic Cincinnati final, mm -hmm. and the prep that's going on, the excitement level, and say, how different it is to talk about Jaziri versus Shadi on first day of Cincinnati? You still have to do a job. Uh, what's the yeah. mindset? Yeah, it's... Um... Clearly, I mean, I think probably the first difference is I have more time if I'm doing a final because well, come the weekend we're only doing two, two on one matches, so I have a lot more time to prep. Whereas obviously, if we're doing a Masters 1000, we could be doing ten matches in a day, so the chances of me prepping purposefully for every single one is limited. So I think that's the first thing I would say. Uh, generally, I'm much more ready to go for a final because I've had that time in the morning to, to look ahead, and I've seen players obviously play the whole week, so we've had a good idea of how they're playing. I'm able to go back into head-to-head. -head. So Federer Djokovic, I'll go back through the head-to-heads. We often have close conversations with Hawkeye, which have really been useful the last few years in terms of opening up um, possibilities for us because the information they gather is just outstanding from from our point of view. That, you know, We're able to really bring 
take it to another level thanks to them. Um, but you know, if we've got Jaziri and, and uh, Shardy, and, and I haven't necessarily you know been able to prep the match because maybe I don't know I'm doing that because we're going to third court or whatever. Because sometimes we just go to court three for an hour, then we'll often do it on the job. You know, again, it, it comes back to a little bit what I was saying earlier on. I know what the guys have done last week. I know what they've done the last year because my job is to keep on top of things. So I'm always aware of what the player's been doing and generally aware of the player's strengths and weaknesses before I come onto the court. Um, and then some of it maybe will be done, we're done in mid-match. We, we tend to, I tend to use a website now called Tennis Abstract. Um, Jeff Sackman runs, runs that website. And I, I, most of the commentators that I work with now use that website because it's so thorough in terms of mm-hmm. its numbers and statistics and records. Mm-hmm. It's very, very useful for us and it's easy to use. So, yeah, that, that's kind of the differences really. So, so it's not that you're carrying a, uh, with you a book of statistics and uh, another book of jokes and a book of quotes. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, you know, uh, no, not at all. But again, some, some of it will also be done on site. You know, if I'm in, at a tournament and generally I am at a Masters, I'm able to talk to, to coaches, uh, which I think is really, really useful because, again, I think that's something that the viewer, uh, we can bring to the viewer that they will never be able to bring because, you know, we have access to the coaches and the, and the players that, that – viewers obviously don't have. So again, I see my job as relaying that information with as much discretion as possible. Clearly, if coaches don't want things to be said, we won't say it. But if I can talk to a coach and get a feel for what they've been working on or the areas of the game they're developing, then that's that's hugely, uh, that's hugely useful for me. Okay, so you just said, you know, because a lot of times when you don't have to do the prep, hmm. uh, because you were there the week before. Sure. And that's, you know, that and that's a discussion us fanboys always have. And I've had some of my friends argue with both sides of the coin. Mm. Look, I love John McEnroe. When I came to the States, I listened to John McEnroe every year when he was doing commentary for USA for French Open. Sure. But after a while, every year the French Open, I did not want to hear about the Lendl McEnroe final. I knew it. So that's when Tennis Channel came and uh, I got familiarized with the voices of Koenig, Lester, Goodall. I started learning more about what Karlovich is doing. Sure. Or what Justin Gimmelstab is doing. He's a journeyman, but you know what he has to do. And I understand the star values the McIndoe and Becker bring to it. Mm-hmm. But do you think there's a fine line when you cater to a casual fan or, or a hardcore fan? I personally, when I'm broadcasting, I'm always catering for the hardcore fan. That's the way I, that's the way I am. Because my attitude is if I'm catering for the hardcore fan, then I'm then they're pleased. And I'm also catering for the people that don't watch quite so much because hopefully they're gathering as much information from me and as without sounding too arrogant and education in, in a way as well. So if I'm only catering for the people that watch part time, I'm not catering for the guys that watch full time. And to be honest, my attitude to it is if you're watching Lorenzi against Ramos Vinolas on the first Monday from Monte Carlo, you know about tennis. That person knows about tennis. So I do not I do not want to insult that person by necessarily telling them some basic information. My job is to try and enhance that match. Those people that are tuning into those sorts of matches early part of the week are tennis fans. They're tennis fans. They understand the game. So what's important from my perspective is to then try and, as I say, enhance that coverage if I can and, and, and have discussions around the sport uh, with Robbie very often, who we often talk about various different aspects of the game. So, um, yeah, that's I'm always, always catering for the hardcore fan. I mean, I don't want to cross the line, but do the networks have guidelines telling a McIndoe or a Nick Lester what they should be talking if they know what the demographic of the audience is? Yeah. Or is it pretty much free-flowing? You in the booth, run the show? Yeah, it really depends on the executive producer. I mean, I've never worked for ESPN. I've worked for ESPN Direct TV, but never ESPN main network, so I don't know what their remit is. 
Um, I've never really had that. I get the occasional um, occasional bits and bobs from, from people in my industry. But to be honest, at this stage now, it's largely free reign. It's largely free reign. They, they kind of just let us – they know that we – well, they hopefully know that we know what we're talking about and try to do the best job we can. So they, they let us let us let us get on with it. So uh, slightly changing topics. Um, so we see a lot of matches where you even feel like the players are going through the motions, and uh, and I know that they can get jaded. They're traveling all over the world, um, and I wanted to ask the same thing of you: is do you sometimes does it ever get boring? And 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 I ask. I know how passionate we all are about the sport. Uh, but you have to call a match when you have to call a match. And uh, so what motivates you every day? I have a huge love of the game. That's what motivates me. I, I love being on site at events. I love being in stadiums. I love the energy that tennis matches bring to a court. But of course, there are matches that are that are disappointing, that are poor, um, where a player isn't necessarily giving 100%. You can see they're mentally way wobbling. You know, done, done loads of matches like that over the years. Um, and it's frustrating. It's frustrating at times to commentate on matches like that. But I think you have to be honest. You have to be as honest as you can be and tell it how it is. And if a player is not putting in their best efforts, wonder why that might be. Question why that is. You know. And then, and then from again, when we're commentating on those sorts of matches, then you get into to other subjects. Necessarily, you're not. You know, you might be letting it breathe for a fair bit, but you're also looking at other ways to bring different things to an audience. So, yeah, of course there are matches that are dull. Of course there are. We've all watched loads of dull matches over the years. Of course there are matches where you, you think, oh, in a way I'm looking forward to this one to being over. But my job is to keep it going and, and to, to, to try and bring something to the table in that specific match. And then if, if I feel that you know we've enough's been said, then we take a step back and, and we just let it happen and, and let the match breathe and just come in when we feel appropriate. But... Of course, it's like anything, it's good matches and bad matches. But overall, to be honest, every day, every day I wake up from my job, I look forward to going to work. So <laughs> I, I'm not uh, not in any way, shape, or form uh, have bad days. Uh, next, so tennis. I mean, of course, we all know it has to be the most or one of the most international sports out there. So this is a very basic pet peeve of mine, which has improved over the years. Uh, how much? Uh, uh, research or focus is going on if there's a new player on the horizon and nobody knows how to say his or her name. Like this Russian guy, uh, I have some Russian friends on uh, Twitter who told me it's Hashinov, not Kashinov, K is silent. But I hear a lot of people still, I'm, I'm undecided what the name is and what kind of research a guy like Nick Lester would do to find, you know, what the right name is. Well, it's funny you say that because I, you know, I was in Doha first week of the year and I asked the ATP representative how you say his name. Uh, and uh, they told me, I think, yeah, I can't remember the exact pronunciation of it, but um, that was something that we generally go to the ATP for. So I've, I've been pronouncing it Hatchinoff, um, but if I'm, and, uh, heard, yeah. yeah, but I will do that until I'm told otherwise by the ATP. So if, if I, or, or, or to be honest, I could actually go up to the player in the player's lounge and say, listen, sorry to disturb you, but would you mind just telling me how you pronounce your name? So there's that way around it as well. So there's a number of ways of, of getting around it. I mean, Djokovic is the classic example for me because obviously when I go stateside, I hear it pronounced completely differently. And I've been to Serbia for on numerous occasions for Davis Cup and I've asked the Serbians how you say his name. And it's not Djokovic for sure. Absolutely 100% certain, even though I know he's been on record as saying it is. So, yeah, listen, that, that's, that's a difficult one. You could probably... Ask ten different people from ten different parts of the world how you pronounce a certain player's name, and you might get it slightly differently. So we tend to take the uh, our line from the ATP, and if they they tell us otherwise, 
and we go the other way. In fact, there was an example of uh, Dog Poloff, who I used to call um, Dog, I used to call him Dog Poloff, and ATP said to me, no, no, it's Dog Poloff. So it varies. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I'm not massively concerned by that. It sounds a little bit perhaps lazy, but as long as I'm, people can see who's playing. You know, if if, it, if I'm getting it drastically wrong, then of course that's a concern. But for the most part, I'm, I'm, I take my line from the ATP. Or you take the Brad Gilbert route and have have your own personal nickname. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so just uh, switching topics to uh, today's men's tour, uh, Nick, you've been following a lot of uh, tennis. And so can you give us a preview of uh, the clay court season that's coming up and who are the players you're looking forward to watching in, in the next couple of months, given that um, some players, some key players are missing? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously going to be fascinating to see to see where Djokovic is right now. Uh, a lot of question marks as, as to where he's at, I think, clearly. But I, I do sense that the fire is, is most definitely returning in him. I was watching, I did his Davis Cup match a couple of weeks ago against Ramos Vinoles, a match he, of course, he should win. Uh, I thought he played well. He definitely looked sharp. I think there is, uh, he's got that look about him again. Uh, I think so. I'm not sure when, it's, when he's going to be back playing his best tennis, but I do sense by the French... Uh, that he is going to be very much back to his best. I think. I think it might take a little while, you know, for Djokovic not to come to get that kind of get that level of play back to the very best where he was uh, a year or so ago. So I'm not necessarily expecting him to win this week in Monte Carlo, but I am expecting him to play well. Um, Nadal clearly comes in with some good momentum. You know, you only have to look at his results this year to to know that he's playing well. And, and uh, we don't need any. Uh, obviously, don't need to saying that the clay court season is so. Um, so good for him over the years. He once he smells the clay, he's he's feeling good again, and he's coming in with confidence, which I think is a, is a real bonus for him. Um, and and obviously Murray is in a new situation, uh, world number one. He's he's got the target on his back at the moment. So how much of that is in his mind will be fascinating to see because clearly at the start of the year, the first couple of months haven't gone the way he wanted to. Um, so there's there's definitely a couple of question marks ahead of those top two. So uh, I, I think Rafa comes in to the clay court season of, of obviously excluding Federer because of his problems. I think he comes in feeling the best about his game, no doubt about that. Interesting. And what about uh, the younger uh, players on the tour, so Dominic Thiem and uh, Jack Sock and the others? Um, do, do you see... Uh, I So I have a theory that these players are playing way too much tennis and they're probably getting burned out a bit. Uh, especially now I'm starting to see that with Jack Sock. Uh, would you agree with that view? Yeah, I think it's tough initially when you have success um, to manage your schedule because when you do break through, you know, when you do become a top 15, top 20 player, you're playing well, obviously. You're winning a lot of matches. You want to keep playing. And generally, you have your schedule set for the year. So it's hard to change that. But I was very surprised that Dominic team played uh, the run of uh, Sofia, Rotterdam, uh, Rio, Acapulco, Indian Wells. I was very surprised to see him play that many events. I don't know what's behind that, but it is very questionable for me. There's, 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 it's a very questionable decision. I don't know whether it's a financial one, whether tournaments are, lower tournaments are offering him a fair bit of money, which is understandable. But you would have thought, given the way he burnt out in the second half of last year, that he would have scheduled things a little more sensibly this year. However, in saying that, you know, at his age, 23-24, the physical side of things for him is taken care of. He's very strong. This is this should be his time, again, like Nadal, to really accelerate on. 
Um, but again, I, I, I've been I, I, watching him certainly during Indian Wells and Miami, and he played a great match against Vavrinka in, in Indian Wells the week after. He definitely looked burned out to me. I thought the match with Chorich was poor. He, he looked to be distracted in that match, and, and I don't know whether that's playing too much tennis or or whether he just needed a bit of a break or whether perhaps he's looking ahead to the clay court season already. But I think he's a French Open champion of the future team. I, I don't think that's saying anything particularly new. I think, you know, for me, he's got the game to win on clay. Um, he's got a forehand that is just enormous. I mean, if you ever get to sit courtside and watch his forehand, it is just massive. And, and the kick serve complements that so well. So his game is very much suited to the clay. So I expect him to, to play well over the clay court season as long as he's fresh. And as far as the younger guys go, well, Kyrgios obviously not starting till Estoril. Uh, Sasha Zverev is getting stronger every week, it would seem. Unbelievable competitor. I think he's, you know, the issue for him at the moment is managing the emotions because still he's struggling a little bit. Um, the ups and downs of matches, he's, he's struggling. So, again, that's maturity. And, and I, as I always say, you don't judge Sasha Zverev week in, week out at the moment. You judge him in two or three years' time when he's 23, 24, the time at 19. And that's a, that, I think that's one of the difficulties of our job as well because, in a way, we are there to judge. You can't judge Sasha Zverev now. It's not about what he does now. It's a long-term thing for him. All, you know, When we're watching him play, it's, it's the development. It's the process for him, and it's where he's going to be at in five years' time. And if, if certainly it looks as though, judging by what we've seen this year already, that he's he's going to be very much uh, part of the top of the game for a long time. Yeah, and we're starting to see some of that with Nick Kyrgios already. I think is uh, you know uh, moving to that next level of uh, uh, play, and sure. it almost seems like we we are very impatient as fans. Yes, yeah, exactly. No, exactly. And uh, you know, Nick's Nick obviously is a guy who beats to his own drum. is is a very unique personality. Um, very sensitive guy, I think, off court. People don't necessarily understand that, but he's a very sensitive guy off court. And he's learning lessons. He's learning lessons, and not everyone learns them at the different time. Everyone learns them at different times of their careers. And he's learning his now, and, and you know, his tennis is, you know, the match with Federer uh, in Miami a couple of weeks ago was will probably be, I would have thought, one of the top three or four matches of the year. All right, so let's uh, wrap this up. Uh, and we have to have a question about the Roger Federer. Mm. So does this man surprise you what he's accomplished after, not he was written for the dead, but nobody was sure uh, how his comeback is going to pan out. And now he's so ahead, he's leading the rankings, won three major tournaments this year. Uh, how do you see his comeback and how how do you see if he can extend this ways of winning? Listen, I'd be lying if I said I expected him to win Australian Open and it was Miami. I mean, he, nobody had that one written down, did they? So... Um, for sure, that's 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 a major surprise. I think for me, the biggest surprise is his willingness and his understanding to learn new things. You know, how often do you see a guy who's won seventeen, eighteen majors suddenly start to come over their back end and, and employ a tactic that they'd never done in their previous eighteen years of their career to the extent that he has? And that, for me, says everything about him as a person that he takes people on board and listens to them. And you're talking, we're talking about probably the greatest player of all time, certainly one of them. And here he is at 35 learning new tricks. And, and that for me says everything about him as a personality. And, and, and yeah, no. And I think, you know, going forwards, can he keep it going? We've, we've got to remember that, you know, he hasn't beaten, but he hasn't beaten Murray and Djokovic in this run. So let's just temper things a little bit. Um, clearly the level of tennis he's produced, um, has been absolutely outstanding of the highest order. It's been breathtaking 
pretty much every single match he's played in Indian Wells, certainly more than Miami. But he still hasn't beaten Mario Djokovic in this run. So let's just let's just see where we are come Wimbledon, see how his body holds up, uh, and then and then that'll be fascinating to see if those guys go at it. Hey, thanks for the insight, and this will make Wimbledon even more exciting. Exactly, with everyone healthy. Exactly. So thank you very much, Nick, for, for your time. Uh, we really enjoyed this conversation. Um, we know you're very busy, so thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. No problem, guys. <laughs>